You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions, and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Jonathan Rivers, CTO of Fortune Media, including Fortune Magazine, Fortune Live Media, Conference Business, and Fortune Connect, their new leadership membership organization. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm always glad to, to come out and share. Now, let me ask you one quick little warm-up question before we get going. Back when you were a kid, what's something that you would have wrongly said, I'll never do or be? And I remember when I told my grandfather this, he was incredibly mad. I said I would never work with my hands for a living. And I actually took a sabbatical from the tech industry in 2003 to go become a motorcycle mechanic and work as a certified Harley Davidson mechanic at a dealership for a couple of years. So I was quite wrong about that. Oh my goodness. Yes. And was, is your grandfather still around? Was he able to appreciate his victory? Sadly, he wasn't, but my grandmother took great joy uh, (laughs) in seeing that come to fruition. I remember saying, I was surrounded by teachers all over the place. My dad, two of his brothers, a bunch of my mother's cousins, one of my aunts, everybody was teachers. I thought, I will never be a teacher. I hate the fact that all we ever talk about is school. Yeah, well, guess what? That changed too right out of college. That was my former life. But I always say it's a good thing words don't have calories because I eat way too many of them. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so now back to Fortune Media. Who do you need to influence in your current role as CTO? Everyone. And and I think that's the interesting thing. They don't tell you this when you go to CTO school, uh, which doesn't (laughs) exist for the record, is that my job is actually sales. And what I do is I sell ideas and I need to sell the technical ideas that my team has to my peers on the executive team. I need to sell it to the other parts of the organization. I need to sell the ideas the executive team has back down to my technical teams so that they understand what they're building. And really, while I'm responsible for a significant amount of technology, right? I'm not writing code day in, day out. I'm working through other teams, making sure that my people understand what they need to be built, why it needs to be built, and then reflecting all of their work out to the various parts of the organization. And so it's everyone. That does sound like a pretty wide berth for the people to have to connect with. Is it hard to speak all of their languages at the same time, so to speak? It is. And I think that's one of those skills that you really, really need to learn very, very quickly. Understanding the language that somebody speaks and how how to approach them for things is key to making that happen. I think one of the things that you see in really successful CTO candidates and and frankly, anybody in a technical profession is how do you translate technical things into business speak and so that you don't speak down to people or that you don't make them feel dumb because they don't understand the complex thing that you're talking to them about. And so it's one of those things you really, you need to spend the time to develop. Yes, absolutely. That's the the expert's curse when you forget what's not obvious to everybody else, for example, or what's not interesting for that matter to everybody else. 
or what they don't care about. Right. You know, you might care about it a lot, but if it's not valuable to them, then you just telling them over and over, you're not getting through to them. Right. Right. So is that one of the biggest challenges? What is one of the biggest challenges that you or Fortune Media are facing today? It's been a bit of a journey since I've been there. And and I, I think it's funny. I call it fortune detail syndrome. Okay. Uh, and, and because it's a magazine, you know, magazines only go out one time and they have to be perfect. Right. And everything has to be thought of and everything has to be perfect before anything is ever done. And so there's all of this emphasis on on every little single detail. And when you start working with digital technology, I have a thousand lives, right? If I put out a website and there's one little pixel out of place, I can move it. And tomorrow, nobody's ever going to see it again. Nobody's ever going to remember that something wasn't right. And so one of the challenges is how do we have strategic discussions without getting so mired in the details? And the example I give is if I want to talk about a table, for example, Oftentimes the organization will immediately, is it going to have wood grain? Is it going to be natural wood grain? Is it going to have large knots in it? Is it going to have a heavy gloss? Oh, what about those self edge or the living edge? I really like that on a table. And then somebody else would be like, no, you know, what about granite? It's a little more durable. And I'm like, could we stop for a moment? What kind of table do we need to build? Is it a kitchen table? Is it a desk? How many people do we need to sit at the table? Does it need four people? Does it need to be eight people? Right. What are we actually going to do at this table so that I understand what kind of thing to construct? And so that delta between what's the point of the conversation? Are we having the strategic conversation or are we having the tactical conversation? And I think a lot of times it gets mired in meetings and it causes them to be inefficient or have a second meeting happen where we really need to clear all of that up. Yes. The devil is in the details when there's too many of them, to say the least. Right. You can't make progress on a conversation if you're really spending a lot of time on the most minute of things. That'll come later, much closer to the work and understanding what you're doing and more importantly, why you're doing it up front uh, is huge. Translating that why, ever critical. Now, I think you you alluded to this a little bit before, and, and maybe we'll go back to the same topic, or maybe you'll surprise me. But with regard to getting to where you are now as CTO, what are some of the specific communication skills that you really had to develop? It was a huge one, and it was my, it was my last job. I really needed to focus on public speaking and more hmm. importantly, being on camera. I remember being in a meeting with my chief revenue officer at the time. She was brand new. She's a good friend of mine. Her name is Heather Combs. And she looked at me and I was just telling one of my stories rambling on and on. And she goes, I am going to make you a product. And I was like, what? She was like, you are a product. And I was like, okay. And I realized right then that they were going to want me to be on stage Mm. and that I needed to be on camera. And the problem is I was afraid of being on video, like petrified. You and I are talking, we're having a good time, you know, just sort of laughing. And that's how I am in person. But back then... If I saw that single red light of judgment pointed at me, staring at me, I would just sort of freeze up and I wasn't any good at it. Mm. And and so I realized over the years, I'm a very, very natural storyteller. It's a, a skill and a gift of mine that I absolutely love. But doing that in a repeatable fashion, doing it on demand, yeah. I was not good at. And so I went back and put in hundreds of hours developing my public speaking methodology. And I did it in a pretty unconventional way for most executives. I went to YouTube, 
and I pulled up every Henry Rollins video that I could find. And now tell everybody up. who's Holly, who who he is. Yeah, so Henry Rollins is a fairly famous punk musician. He was the lead singer of the legendary band Black Flag. He also does a lot of activism and spoken word tours. He is a fantastic orator, and he speaks with such power and such intensity, and I was really taken by it. And so what I did was I started watching him and watching the cadence that he used to deliver and how he would tell his stories time and time again, and I would watch him tell the same stories in slightly different ways, depending on the audience or the medium. And you start to see the parallels and how he did it. And then what I did is I took it and I figured out how to do that my way. And that's one of the critical things about developing a skill is people will tell you what to do, or people will tell you how to do it, especially public speaking, hold your hands in front of you. Don't move your arms, do this, do that. And if you don't take that feedback and figure out how to apply it in a way that is comfortable for you, you're always going to come across as stilted and unnatural in that medium. And so I really focused on how do I be my version of Henry Rollins and take what I saw him doing and apply it in my own way. And it was, it developed into something I love doing. Do you have any other favorite examples of orators? Um, who may or may not be, you know, rock musicians. You know, I know I caught you off guard with this one. You, you did. I would say probably Lewis Black, the comedian. Okay. Um, I don't like political orators or or okay. people who tend to give speeches. I don't find them authentic or genuine. I mean, sure. they, they're generally pandering to the crowd. They're written for them. I tend to like much raw content. Okay. There's got to be an authenticity to it one way or another, for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Then what about mistakes made? I think we've all had at least one or two of them along the way. So if you could tell us about a time when you had to learn a lesson the hard way, and if you either had the opportunity for a do-over or wish you had an opportunity for a do-over, what did it or would it look like? It's funny now to me that some of the scars have healed from it, but but I, I messed up pretty badly very, very recently. It was a big deal. You know, when we were we were sort of doing the launch, I was having trouble getting everybody to the table. And again, you work through influence. You don't do the work yourself. You're working through intermediaries. And some of my intermediaries couldn't get everybody they needed in a room to make decisions. And they were very, very frustrated. And we had a text thread going back and forth where they were talking to me about some of their difficulties. And I was like, look, if you can't get them to the table, screw them, keep moving, we've got to go. And this is the thing about deadlines. You know, if you have a hard deadline and you can't get everybody aligned, you can't stop the deadline. Sometimes you just make decisions and you move and you go. And that's the way I operate, right? I invite people into the room. And if I can't get them in the room, train ain't stopping. And so I had sent this person some texts that were with some fairly strong language that sort of, you know, boils down to, look, if you can't get in the room, screw it, go. Screw them, go, right? And hilarity ensued. (laughs) This person became disenfranchised for whatever reason and decided to throw a live hand grenade into my life and forwarded all of those text messages to those people. Mm. And they really took it as a betrayal. Mm. They really took it as a betrayal and it became a very deep issue where all of my credibility was put on trial because you, you have these cold, hard texts with no context that you, you have to live down. And the people were getting madder and madder. And I set up the meeting 
you know, knew I was going to go take a beating on this one. And when I got into the meeting, one of the people was visibly shaking. They were that angry at me sort of about this. And I said, look, you know what? Um, Let me ask you this before you continue on that. So my interpretation is that the phrase screw them probably was what was misinterpreted. What did they read into it versus what did you mean by it? Yeah, I think they read into it that I didn't have any care for their desires. And the context that was missing was I had asked repeatedly, are they in the room? And I was told repeatedly, no, they keep canceling meetings with me, Mm. right? So we both had different sets of information. Sure. And when they got forwarded, all they saw was sort of inflammatory text. And so I I said, look, I'm not going to deny that you have texts, right? I'm not even going to ask you to present them to me. And I'm not even going to ask you what they say, because I promise you that anything you accuse me of, I am probably guilty of. You know me by now. You know my patterns of speech. We all know that I probably said, you know, something like this. I was like, tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you what was going on. And we're going to talk. And either we're going to hug this out, or it's going to be pistols at dawn, and we're going to figure out what to do. And so I, I then went into that context about, look, this is the information that I was being given. and we had this deadline. I had to make these decisions. Otherwise products couldn't get built. And, you know, I think taking that beating, that open honesty, you know, went a long way to rebuilding that relationship. Now that didn't mean I had a very large hole I had to climb out of, right. You know, trust takes a long time to build and it is shattered in a nanosecond. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, spent a, a long time rebuilding those relationships, but I really learned, one, you probably shouldn't put things in writing that are going to be used against you. I'm not sure I'm smart enough to not do that in the future. But I think even for me, because that's like that's just an easy lesson. That's not the big one. I think okay. that the real lesson is that when you've done something wrong, even if you don't think you've done something wrong, but when you have hurt somebody else, especially in a business context, that you own it and and you accept that I hurt you, I did not mean to, and let's talk about why and how we move forward and being brave enough and you know owning up to your sins. Absolutely. And the humility of being able to acknowledge wrongdoing, even if unintentional. And that, you know, a lot of the conversations I've been having lately around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion is looking at that balance between intent versus impact and where that balance is. Because it's hard. You can say, well, I didn't mean it. And they can say, well, it doesn't matter if you meant it. It still hurt. So for you to be able to acknowledge, you know, I did not mean to do that. And I, you know, I apologize for the hurt involved. But most importantly, for you to then be able to go forward and say, let's look at what we can learn from here and how we make it work moving forward. I don't want to do that again. Obviously, now I know. So how do we not repeat the infraction? So I think that's really critical. That's absolutely right. I think, you know, it's ownership, right? Your customer's perception is your reality. Right. And it it doesn't, right. We could, we could go into sort of, you know, intent-based ethics and, you know, there's, there's a very, very long philosophically bankrupt line of thought because it, it, it doesn't matter what you intended to do, what happened, happened, and you need to recognize that that's very real. Well, and I think it also is important because the ability and the willingness to step into that conversation if you're called to a carpet for some reason, then okay, it may or may not be the choice, but the willingness to be comfortable with the discomfort, or at least to accept that discomfort and be willing to work through it and say, how do we grow? And then for the other people to say, okay, let's, yes, I accept 
the invitation to figure out how to work past this. We can't have any conversations that are difficult unless they are unless people are willing to work through it together and come to a solution together with regard to how do we prevent this from happening again and the, the willingness to forgive, move forward, collaborate and step out of that comfort zone. You know, the nature of stepping out of a comfort zone means making mistakes because you're not comfortable in it. You don't even know what you don't know yet. So that's a great example. Yeah, it's right. And I'd say it doesn't even matter if you get called to the carpet for it, because you could always try and sell your way out of it. Sure. And lots of people do that, uh, right? They spin, they sell, they, you know, they do a song and dance. I think taking those things head on is how you build better relationships. Absolutely. Now let's keep talking about building better relationships. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to talk to our listeners directly with our 24-hour influence challenge. So given everything we've discussed so far, how would you like to challenge our listeners to take one step in the next 24 hours to help them have more influence? I think what I challenge them to do is think about a meeting that you have this week. Think about a meeting that you have that you need to get something out of it, right? You need a decision. You need money. You need a change in a process. You need something out of that meeting. And I want you to think about that outcome. And then I want you to write a 30-second proposal for it, right? Go ahead and write the elevator pitch for that. So that way you're going into that meeting knowing what you're going to try and get out of it, right? Having actually realized, you know, this is the outcome that I'm looking for. How am I going to go in there and try and get it? And for bonus points, do 30, 60, and 90 second versions of the pitch. Mm -hmm. And the reason that you do that is because with each 30 seconds, you get to layer in additional detail and then look at those two extra 30 seconds of detail and think about what you're putting in there. Then is it valuable? Should that have been included in that core message? Is Mm. that something in the core message? Does that need to go out to one of those outer rings? And when you have any communication that you are engaging in, any information that you need to do, you have a limited amount of time and you want to get the most impact for it. And so how do you be concise? How do you pack that 30 seconds full of all of the relevant information? And then if you have more time, here are the bonus points. Which is interesting because that's kind of a flipped version of an exercise that I do with a lot of clients when I'm helping them find their sound bites for media is, all right, well, give me the two minute version of your story. Okay, we're going to time you. There's your minute. Now give me the one minute version. Okay, well, what gets whittled out and what gets capped and then now give me the 30 second version. And you realize, oh, okay, well, here's the stuff that I can't afford to leave it. Well, okay, there you go. There's your piece. And But sometimes you have to work through that process. So whether you go down and up or up and then down, I love the multiple versions of it to see what really matters. So there you go. You're 30 second. And if you're feeling extra challenged or you want to feel extra challenged, do the 60 and 90 second versions as well, your elevator pitch. Now, Let's talk a little bit more about how you lead others. You lead a team of people. And when you think about things like executive presence or leadership presence, command presence, it's got lots of names. What do you think about? I think about authenticity. I mean, that for me is the root of it. And here's the thing. Managers are assigned. Leaders are chosen. Mm, Define that for me. Yeah. So you take a job, you have a boss, you don't get a choice in that. Sometimes you get moved from one division to another division and somebody is assigned as your boss, right? Unless you're the CEO, but then you still have the board. There's there's always a flea in somebody's ear. You're (laughs) always going to have a boss 
that you have to listen to. Leaders are chosen right? We choose on a day-to-day basis who we want to listen to, Mm. who we want to be inspired by, and whose direction we want to follow. Your manager can tell you to do something. That is merely instruction. Right. But you doing something of your own volition is the person that you believe in. And sometimes that's someone else in the organization. Maybe it's a leader in a different group. Maybe it is a peer who is inspiring you in a different way. And that's what I mean by leaders are chosen. You're making a conscious decision to who you want to listen to, right? You might feel duty to do an action, but you're going to make choice based on how you feel. And I believe all of that starts with authenticity. You have to know somebody as a human being before you can really understand and know them as a leader. Because if you don't, if you don't think they're real and that you're just getting this facade, you don't know how truthful what they're trying to get you to do is. And the thing about leadership is you're trying to get your team to do uncomfortable, challenging things. You're asking them to change. You're asking them to grow. You're asking them to push themselves. And if they don't know why you're doing that, and if they don't believe in you as a human being, they're going to grind you out. They're going to grind you out and just not do it. I couldn't agree more. I've always said that leadership, you can debate the definition all over the place, but ultimately it's an image. You you can be an intern in the mailroom and be perceived, be recognized as a leader or be the CEO and not. The difference between the boss versus the leader is so much that, do I see you that way? Do I choose? I love that word, choose, that, that a leader is chosen by each individual whom they lead. That's a great different lens to look at it. Now, When you're looking to hire or to promote to a leadership role in the organization, what are some of the most important communication skills you look for? And what's a red flag that would say, oh, nope, I don't care that everything else is great. Reject. Yeah. So when I'm doing succession planning and really looking at the people who are going to make the most impact, they're the ones who can speak concisely and clearly. Again, the ones who can pack the most information into the least amount of speech possible. And while I love a good yarn and you're hearing me regale you of all of these stories, I'm trying to pack as much information into that as possible. And when, sure. we, get, when we get into business and you get into, say, a meeting that's not about entertainment, right? It's about decision-making. You want to use as few words as possible because you want to make sure that people are in a meeting as little time as possible, that we get to the salient points, that we understand the outcomes, that we communicate clearly. And so that really crisp style is what I'm looking for. And the flip side of that, the red flag, I have a couple of rules for hiring, and I'm just going to touch on the first one, which is no heroes or martyrs. Mm, Okay. And, And this will sound counterintuitive. Like everybody I say this, like, why would you not want a hero on your team? And I'll tell you why, because heroes need to save the day and I don't want the day to be saved. The thing about a hero, and and you'll spot a hero time and time again, because when you're in the interview process, they'll tell you, if I hadn't worked 40 hours of overtime, this project never would have happened. I woke up at 3 a.m. and, you know, saved production and got everything back up and running. They will regale you with stories of time and time again where they saved the day. And that's the thing. They have an intrinsic need to save the day, which means unconsciously they will put themselves and the organization in jeopardy to fulfill that. 
They won't automate a task. They won't do something ahead of time. They won't necessarily collaborate to the layer that they needed to because those little voids and those little holes that they left, you know, and, and it's not a deliberate thing, give them the opportunity to hit that little pellet and get the dopamine reward that they, <laughs> right. that they, that they need. And so like that one, you got to watch out for it because you will clean up a lot of messes from that one. Sure. And you don't want the hero in their own mind either. Yeah. Great. And then what about managing up? Tell me about a time when somebody in your organization pitched an idea to you and it just failed miserably. What should they have done differently if they really wanted to hear you say yes? It's funny. We talked about this earlier. I I have such a hard time because I tend to say no to most proposals Mm. on the first pass. I generally don't feel like people come prepared. They come in and they're like, I want $50,000 to improve this, or I, I need three developers to do that. And I always sort of ask two questions when they come to me for this ask. I say, you know, question number one, how would you know you're successful for having gotten whatever okay. you, you've asked sure. for me? Success right? measure. Yep. So what's a success measure? Okay, great. This is how you know you'd be successful. Now, two, walk me through how your plan gets you there. Yep. And that second question, if the first question doesn't get them, the second question always does, because I feel like people romanticize their plan and they romanticize their notion. They know in their head that if I have this extra developer, if I have this extra money, or if I have an extra three months, that I'm going to be able to do this. But they haven't already mapped out the steps in their head about how they're going to make use of that resource. Right. And so before I'm going to sign off on anything. I want to hear that plan to know that they've at least gone through the mental exercise of thinking it through. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so now this is going to bring us to the speed round. And the speed round is a couple of issues that regularly come up with my training and coaching. And I'm going to ask you just to answer everything first. I'll give you a kind of a choice. And I want you to go with your gut instinct where you fall on these two options. And then I'll ask you for a little bit more detail from there. Sound good? Yep. Let's do it. All right. Number one, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I think we're going to be surprised by some of the details. So public speaking, love it or hate it? Love it. And can you give us one tip for managing nerves and speaking with confidence, even if somebody doesn't feel it necessarily? Figure out the first thing you're going to say. Mm. Uh, and that's what I always focus with, right? I, I prepare all of my material. I have a couple of mental constructs for treating every slide as a story. Okay. Uh, so every slide is a self-contained story, and that makes it very easy to memorize because really, if you use standard you know, techniques, you should probably be less than two to three minutes on a slide, and that's really easy to have that bit of information stored as a process. But the critical thing is... What do you say the moment you walk out on stage? How do you, you know, lead in? And I'll even do something as funny as walk on stage and go, howdy. And then when people look at me, I'll go, so just for the record, I am Texan and we do say that, so you'll forgive me. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll sort of go on into, into things. But knowing that first interaction and setting yourself up for the level of energy that you're going to do for the rest of your presentation is key. Because if you come in and you tap the mic and you're like, um, um, is this thing on? You're already starting from a place of uncertainty and you're going to have to try and fight your way into some power. But if you roll in like a thunderstorm 
it's much easier to sustain that level of energy throughout the entire time. Nice. Nice. I, I like the analogy that each slide is a story into itself. So being able to just know the, the general content of it. Of course, you need to know the specific details, but you don't have to memorize every word. Be able to flex with that. I think it's critical. Yeah. Then what about, and I think I can guess this, but maybe not. I think most people might be surprised here too. Introvert or extrovert, where do you fall? Introvert, like the day is long. Ha, ah, see, I knew there was a surprise in here someplace. Okay, tell me why you're an introvert. And then what's one strength of yours as a result of being that introverted self? And what's something that you have to work on as a result? Yeah. So I am an introvert and I've known it for years. And in my case, right, I can come on shows like this and I can be full Jonathan. I'm like, bam, let's do this. Let's make this happen. I can roll out on stage. I can do it. I can go and do six interviews in a single day where I'm talking to candidates and walking them through the job. I can do all of these things, meeting after meeting after meeting. And for me, part of being an introvert is not that I can't be in public or that I can't do these things. It's the price I pay for having done them. And, and what is and the price? What's the I, currency? It's solitude. It's quiet. I need quiet to recharge my batteries, right? I Once I have done all of those things and I have put it on the table, right, I need a lot of time to recharge. And I've learned that over the years. And having done that, I've turned it into somewhat of a benefit for me where I use that time to process right? And, and so I have gone out and I have had all of these interactions and I have learned all of these things. And then I use that quiet time to really process through all of the information, right? Because you, if you're doing everything all of the time, there's never any quiet period of reflection to absorb mm -hmm. and learn. And so I've done that. And then on the sort of the flip side for the, the growth, and it'll, it'll sound odd for anybody sort of listening to me right now or watching this, but the other part of me being an introvert is I'm actually incredibly shy. And so... Yeah, that came through loud and clear in this interview. I just got to tell you, you know, I was really concerned that you wouldn't have enough to say because you're like, that your how shyness... Gonna, oh, yeah. 30 minutes pulling answer after answer out. Of I was going to pull out my dental kit. Like, how am I going to pull the teeth to get through this interview? No, seriously, though. So, so explain the shyness and how that's possible in there, given everything that we've seen is... When we talked the, the other day, you said, look, I know I'm a character. And I figure somebody who self-identifies as, quote unquote, a character and then says, but I'm really crazy shy. Tell us how that works. It's weird. I have a mental block in speaking to people until I've been introduced. Mm. And it's, it's absolutely bizarre. Like if I walk into a crowded room and I don't know anyone, I will be on my phone and let me tell you, like my teams are going to end up with a really, really heavy workload if I'm at a networking event because I'm going <laughs> to send off like 20 emails asking for stuff. But if somebody walks up and is like, Jonathan, I want to introduce you to Laura, I'd be like, boom, Laura, nice to meet you. I'm Jonathan, blah, 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 blah. And, and we can sort of They've go from They've thrown the switch. There. Yeah. And it's absolutely bizarre. And I I really have to work on it. And it's it's ironic that I say, you know, public speaking, I love it. The first thing you need to figure out is what to say. And I would assume it should technically be that easy on the networking side. It just isn't because, again, there's this weird light just switch there that, block. I, that I have yet been able to get through successfully. Isn't it funny the things that we have head trash about that we all, if we all looked at each other, we'd be like, why does that bother you? Why can't you just like, eh, dismiss it, walk right through? And like, no, 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 no. That is a total non-starter for me. That's never going to happen. But this thing that you freak out about... 
I don't know why you freak out about that because that's so not important. Like, why do you care about that? Like, oh, no, 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 I can never. So everybody's got their thing. We all have that cross we bear. I'm telling you, it's my kryptonite. It's kryptonite. Okay, so we'll go to networking together. I'm going to make the connections for you and then I'll send you off. Perfect. And then finally, handling conflict. Everybody's favorite topic. Uh Uh-huh. Now, not that anybody necessarily loves conflict for itself, and we all know that we have to address it, but what's your natural DNA hardwiring? When you're faced with a potential conflict, a hard topic, do you naturally want to avoid it at all costs or just run right in and address it head on? I will run straight in. I am I'm not afraid of conflict at all. I probably enjoy it sort of way too much, unfortunately, and I think it's it's really interesting for me. I'm particularly good at it. I have spent a lot of time studying the sophists, the ancient Greek philosophers and you know really worked on rhetorical skills because in business sort of conflict and debate is sort of like the modern version of gladiatorial combat. Uh, And so there's a a great bit of joy there, but it runs into this interesting sort of problem for me where I have two personality traits that come together for a superpower and a problem at the same time. And the, the first is, you know, I have no fear reflex. I actually don't have a flight reflex. And, you know, I think a lot of people would be like, oh, that'd be great because I'm scared all the time. But it actually puts you in harm's way more than, you know, flight reflexes are there for a reason. They tell you, you should not do this. And I don't have that. Unless and, you're in a networking event. Or, unless I'm at a networking event. <laughs> Those scary people holding a cup of coffee in a Danish in the morning, just, just like just waiting to say hello to me, like oh, oh the horrors, right? It's 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 madness. But so you combine that with an almost sort of pathological need to win or to fight or to experience conflict and sure. and go through that. And there's sort of this minor sort of corollary to that, which is debate is often how I explore ideas, yes, and really understand things in a greater detail, yeah. And all of that ends up where I will get drawn into conflict that is not constructive. And either it's not constructive because it's going to put me in harm's way, or it's not constructive because it's conflict for conflict's sake, right. or it's not constructive because, you know, and, and some of my peers have caught on to this and thankfully feel comfortable enough with me to now ask, right? Sometimes, you know, they'll look me dead in the eye and go, just quick question. Do you actually care or are you arguing for arguing sake? It's great that they know you well enough to know to say that and to be comfortable to be able to say that. That's right. I was really offended and irritated the first couple of times that it happened. I'm like, no, this matters. And then I started going, well, maybe they're right. Mm. And, and, And I started thinking about it, right? Am I like, do I really need to win this? And if I win this, what are the consequences? Like, what do I gain? Right. And what perhaps have I taken from somebody else, right? What has somebody else lost? Yes. And again, some people who I know are, are comfortable enough to ask me that because it it's a good, you know, splash of cold water that'll slow you down and go, okay, think about this. Like, does it really matter? You know, right. is the mission going to be moved forward, right? Are we going to accomplish what we set out to do for having had this conversation? Right, right. Or are you just flexing for fun? And so uh, <laughs> I, I, I try to be a little more mindful of those things. And I heard the best line a couple of years ago with regard to that need to win, which you know is great in some context. But when it comes to conversations all the time, if you have the need to win 
every disagreement, then that means nobody's allowed to end a conversation with you unless they accept that they have to be the loser. And it's like, is that really how you want people to feel? Like, I'm I, okay, well, we don't have, we don't necessarily agree, but I know I'm not going to be allowed to leave this room until I say, okay, I'm a loser. Thank you very much. Got to go now. So that smacked me right in the face because, look, I enjoy debate for sport as long as it's kept objective and not personal. That's a whole different world. But that was a real eye opener for me. I talk to my teams about negotiation. And I have a theory that I call the two types of negotiation. So you have a type zero and a type one. And And a type zero negotiation is where you don't care and you're trying to extract all value out of your opponent with Mm -hmm. no regard. Think about buying a car. You go into a car dealership and that is a type zero negotiation because the person you're negotiating with doesn't care about you and you do not care about them. You want it. You don't care if their business closes tomorrow. You want to walk away with the cheapest car you humanly can. They are trying to make as much money from you as humanly possible and try and see that deal. A type one negotiation is one in business, is one with your colleagues, your teammates, where you can't extract all the value, right? You can't go into it with somebody having to be the loser. You have to figure out how to do that, that everybody walks away winning something. And I think there's a great parallel there with conflict, right? Where, you know, you should probably think of it not as conflict and more negotiation. And how do we make sure that the folks that we're in this with walk away with dignity and value? Yes. Yes, saving faces uh, should be a bare minimum for everybody involved. So, Jonathan, tell us how people can learn more about you and Fortune. Yeah, so I would say you can always find me on LinkedIn if you want to. Sometimes I post random ideas or thoughts. I think one of the things I really like to do is try and give back. I've been fortunate to have a lot of really cool, fun jobs. And so if you ever see there links to a lot of the talks that I've given things about human centricity in IT, which is sorely lacking, or good ideas sometimes make really bad products and how to do that. Those are fun talks. So there's always there. But definitely for Fortune, either you know come to Fortune and look at the new Fortune, right? We, we launched Fortune Premium earlier this year uh, at the beginning of the year. And most recently, we just launched our new membership organization, Fortune Connect. So that's fortune.com slash connect which is a leadership membership organization focused around purpose-driven leadership. So really this idea that you need to do good in order to do well. Mm -hmm. And how do we in this current really messed up climate learn the kinds of skills, understanding purpose-driven leadership, stakeholder instead of shareholder capitalism, and how diversity, equity, and inclusion really matters and build those into a leadership style. But more importantly, go through that journey with other mid-career professionals who are trying to excel so that you have a support network as you're trying to be a change maker and a leader in those areas in your organization. That's great. Jonathan, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Thank you for having me. This has been an absolute blast. And thank you, everybody else out there for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, give us a five-star rating on iTunes if you're feeling loving today so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence on video. And of course, if you want to download my quick start guide to mastering the three C's, command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sicola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. 
Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sicola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for readers who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.